0: I hold the bet that most of you have met at least one of those guys who nowadays regularly visit a kind of master who takes their money from them in order to teach them how to take care of themselves. Welcome. I'm Ben Boyce, and this is, of course, The Dr. Junkie Show, and today's episode is about my boy, Mikhail Foucault. You heard him on the intro. So last episode was kind of a bummer, but I want to briefly review it anyway. I pointed out that the culture we live in today, in the so-called Western world, tends to leave us all feeling like there's a hole in our soul. Our media promises nonstop cures, pleasures, fulfillment, identity, and purpose, and advertised gizmos, knick-knacks, medicines, and products all the time. Buy my book and your life will change forever, says the 21st century huckster. Treat your STI with our pill and you'll get to ride a horse on the beach every day, says Big Pharma. We've all become largely immune to the hype, because we realized long ago that none of the capitalist products we consume actually delivers on their promises, at least not to the level they claim to. And you can't just respond here, Well, Ben, I understand that capitalism tends to create shallow, self-dumbed-down cultures. Fast and the Furious 23 is much more fun than reading Plato. But at least we all have our careers and our personal lives, We can draw fulfillment and identity from those, right? No, you probably can't, because capitalism has built alienation into those spaces as well. Let me explain. Most of us go to work every day to do whatever our boss tells us to. We aren't all living fulfilling lives that fill us with joy. We're punching clocks to pay the rent. Sure, some of us get to work wonder jobs, like mine. I go into prisons and onto college campuses, and I teach college classes to people who want to be there. That's a fulfilling career, at least for me. But most people don't get to do that sort of thing for a living. I leave work on cloud nine, fulfilled. Most of y'all leave work burned out and looking for... something. We're primed to just zone out to pound a few brewskis or smoke a few doobies and watch some CSI Miami after work. Sure, we plan a vacation or two every year if we can afford it, but again, usually it's just to recharge from work, to unplug. We plan cruises or trips to Miami Beach. We're seldom traveling to Gobekli Tepe to study the ancient ruins or to find purpose in historical artifacts. Not at all. We're too burned out. If we all lost our jobs tomorrow, most of us wouldn't know what to do with ourselves because our leisure time, which would go from short spells after work and weekends to our entire lives, that time's currently filled with time-killing, liver-straining, semi-toxic junk. Here we are now, entertain us, as Kurt Cobain said. And since we've all been in the stew for so long, all of our lives in some cases, We're used to being offered dose after dose of cheap, fake, not-quite-what-was-promised buzzes meant to just get us through another day so we can go back to work tomorrow and do it again. Those doses never quite live up to the hype, but when we use substances that flip those same neural switches, so to speak, only much more predictably and much harder, it's no wonder that so many of us struggle. Okay, okay, Ben, I hear you thinking. Maybe work is now designed to alienate us. But what about my personal life? I mean, after work, I do still drive home in my personal rolling mini house, alone. But it's convenient. Americans love their cars, as the advertisers say. Okay, maybe I never thought about how alienating those actually are. But after I get out of my isolation box on wheels, I go into my apartment or my house, and I close the door behind me, and I usually lock it. I don't need to go anywhere for social connection anymore, because I have a phone. I can call anyone anytime, but I usually don't use it for that. I use it for video games or social media troll baiting instead. I could go outside to inquire about the state of the world, say, from my neighbors, but why bother? I can turn on my TV. My isolation box inside my isolation box that I drove my isolation box on wheels to after work. I can just flip that on and get information or entertainment without ever talking to anyone. I can even order Uber Eats and have them leave it by my door. On second thought, yeah, maybe we are isolated even in our personal lives. And... Yeah, maybe we've long dealt with it by overconsuming chemicals in media that initiate pleasurable emotional and mental states without much effort on our part. We're all drug users already. So, last episode, I dug us through all that muck. That was just our summary. Now, this episode, I actually want to build a little bit on that foundation using Foucault's ideas about power and discipline, namely, the panopticon. So check this out. According to Foucault, you can look back in time a few centuries, I don't know, say Snow White era, and you can note that in most places on Earth where societies existed in any sort of large scale, there was a king or a tribe leader or at least some sort of hierarchical system whereby people gave up some of their freedoms in exchange for some sort of basic rights. Now, I do realize that researchers like David Wengrove and the late David Graeber have written some fabulous books about how cultures across the world long existed without hierarchical systems of the sort I'm talking about. The Dawn of Everything is one great book about this if you're interested in spending a week or two digging into 500 pages of ancient history like I did over Christmas. But nonetheless, for the purpose of this podcast... Consider all the places that we all know about where a king or a single ruler of some sort controlled everything, the entire kingdom. Now, with a king, the rights of the people might be pretty minimal. Maybe they got the right to live in the city if they agreed to bow down whenever he passed by. And on the flip side, once in a while, the king would have to punish somebody, an act normally accomplished by either permanent banishment from the city or by public execution. Enter Foucault's Panopticon. Now, Foucault begins one of his most famous books, called Discipline and Punish, with a summary of one execution that took place in the mid-1700s, in which a man is marched through town wearing nothing but a shirt while holding a two-pound lit candle dripping wax over his head. When he gets to the scaffold, the guy has flesh ripped off his body with red-hot pinchers, And then the wounds from the flesh being ripped off are covered in molten metal. After that, his legs and arms are torn off with horses. And then finally, after all that, his remains were thrown on a fire, burned to ashes, and thrown to the wind. This is the sort of public spectacle that was somewhat common throughout history. The reason that such events were so gruesome was spectacle. The king actually wanted to kill as few people as necessary, because every execution was, at the same time, actually an example of the king's failed power. I mean, the executed person presumably broke the rules, right? Where was the king's power when they committed that infraction? In the successful execution, though, says Foucault, power was re-established. That is... As long as the crowd didn't tear down the scaffold and kill the executioner. Uh Uh-oh. Now when that happened, oh boy, the king was in trouble. Because his power wasn't reaffirmed in the execution, it was actually challenged. It was brought into question by the very people who the king needed to respect him. And before you say, wait, why would the people stop an execution and kill the executioner? Think about your own worldview. How do you or the people close to you feel about Thelma and Louise, Bonnie and Clyde, Al Capone, Donald Trump, the sexy felon from a few years back? Google him if you don't remember. Humans actually have a weird fascination with criminals, Foucault says. And because of that, both executions and punishments, aka prison, they generally went behind the wall around 1850. Enter the penitentiary. Now, these executioner executions, where the people with January 6th the event, they weren't pulled off by death penalty-hating protesters holding up signs and singing songs. I mean, sure, those people have always been here. Charles Dickens was actually a vocal death penalty critic. But this was the citizens doing this. The neighbors, the family members and friends of the accused, the locals who they could convince to get on their side. And executed executioners... Well, that's no way to run a system if you want order as the king. You might be able to respond to a small group of protesters that get out of control, but you can't very well go after the majority of your citizens. So these were bad events. Now at a certain point, says Foucault, single ruler systems had to evolve to a different style because one king just can't rule everybody. There's way too much to do. Plus, when people get pissed off, they know exactly who to come after. The king. We'll come back to that in a minute. No longer do we use king systems in most of the world, and even when there is a king or a single ruler, when you look closely, you'll usually note their power isn't actually as cut and dried as you might think. Like Foucault said, that's because too many people are bound to hate just about anything any policy will almost certainly have a large group of supporters and a large group of opposers nowadays. And because having just one ruler decide everything gives those people a clear target, getting rid of the king fractured power into a million pieces, sending that power somewhere. Nowadays, think about how it feels to be frustrated at a life situation. Now, if you can't relate to that, good for you. Congratulations. I'm glad you have a good life. But try anyway. Imagine, say, you're stuck in a dead-end job, married to someone you can't stand, but unable to leave because, I don't know, you agreed to move to Alaska for a few years and you don't have any money to take your kids and go. Or just pick your own awful scenario and feel free to Freudianly analyze why mine was what it was. The point is, who do you blame in a situation like that? You're broke. You're out of love. You feel like you have no options, no support. No opportunities. But it's not the king's fault. It's the system's fault. So, who do you file your complaint with? Who do you get angry at? Well, that would depend on who's in charge of this new system, which we haven't yet named. Foucault called this system the panopticon, a word he borrowed from a dead guy named Jeremy Bentham, whose mummified head and body are stored separately and sometimes publicly displayed at the University College in London. Bentham basically explained that if you build a prison in a circular shape with all the cells facing inward, and then you put one single guard tower in the middle, you can make everyone in the prison think that they're being watched all the time, even when they're not, by simply tinning the windows of the guard tower. Of course, this is a huge simplification of Bentham's and Foucault's Panopticon. But the point is, you can imagine how that sort of building would make you feel being inside it. If you're in a single cell looking outward, you can't see if there's anyone next to you, or over you, or below you. You can sort of make out people across the large room in other cells, but you can't tell if they're looking at you. And you would always have to assume that someone in the tower might be watching. The result of this physical architecture, this building... You'll act like you're always being watched. You'll surveil yourself. Foucault said the Panopticon isn't just a building. He said it's how the world works in post-King societies. It's no longer fear of the King that makes us behave. It's fear of those around us who might or might not surveil us and report our bad behavior. We now police ourselves. We trip on the way to our cars in a public parking lot, and we feel this weird moment of guilt or shame. To who? We almost post that mean dig at somebody, and then we think, no, I don't want my mom to see that. We dress a certain way, and drive a certain way, and carry ourselves a certain way in public, just in case someone is watching. We surveil ourselves. This, Foucault says, is a much more stable system of power than a king's, Because it makes everyone a cop whose job is to keep an eye on everyone else. No longer does the king have to send out, I don't know, a squad of soldiers to cancel an actor who uses inappropriate language. The people will take care of that themselves on Twitter. And the reason they'll do so is the key to the panopticon in Foucault's work. So here's the wild thing about this system which you're probably already feeling kind of creeped out by if you haven't heard all this before, because it really does sound like how power works in our world. Power in a system like this one boils down to knowledge, to what specific words mean. It's the same way that power in law enforcement comes down to knowledge, to what specific words mean. If having weed in my pocket is illegal, then it's a crime if I'm caught and I go to jail my life has changed. If having weed in my pocket isn't illegal where I'm at, then I go about my business and I have a nice life. The only difference between the two scenarios, say, getting pulled over in Utah versus Colorado, is what the cop in each state knows. The Colorado cop, where weed is legal, is going to know that it's not a crime to have weed in my pocket as long as I'm following all relevant rules. The Utah cop is going to be just as correct in knowing that he's seeing a crime. The only difference is in how they both use those ideas, those concepts, those words, crime, possession, weed. Their knowledge is where the power lies. Whoever controls that controls them. If that example doesn't quite land with you, instead, think about uh, January 6th. What does that mean to you? Did certain words just pop into your head when I said it? Insurrection, patriots, criminals, hang Mike Pence. How about make America great again? Did some other words just pop into your head as associated with those words? Hero, Republican, traitor, Reagan. Your words represent your knowledge, the things that drive you to move. Your words reveal what counts as power when you're in the room. Now, Foucault doesn't see power like most people do, obviously. Before Karl Marx, people mostly looked at power as something someone had. Like, if I can tell you to do something and you feel like you have to do it, I have power over you. But Marx said, oh, you silly simpleton proletariats, don't you see that capital, money, the means of production, that's actual power. And now here comes Foucault with what we now call a postmodern perspective that says that power is in any of those things. Those things, money, the king, the boss who can tell you to do something, your mom, the principal, those are all based on knowledge, on what happens in the mind of the person being communicated with when the communication occurs. Power is literally in what we believe, in what certain words and phrases make us do vote for that guy, fly to D.C. on January 6th, buy a Corvette, join the army. Power is simply the ability to get people to move in all of Foucault's work. Now, if you're thinking, dang it, Dr. Boyce, this is a podcast about drugs and the war on drugs, and here you are, two episodes in a row, well into the content, and making my brain hurt without ever mentioning drugs. Well, here goes. Let's apply some of Foucault's basic theories to the drug war, and to the culture at large. If I'm using drugs in the United States, I can expect to be surveilled, and I can expect the response to that surveillance to be negative. If somebody sees me using, they're very unlikely to have a positive reaction. I had a student a few years back as just one example, who filled out an end-of-the-semester survey you know, those ones you take after every class where you get to say whether your teacher sucks or is mediocre or good. And they said something to the effect of, it was very distracting that he bragged about being high all the time and constantly showed us drugs. Yeah. Now, of course, I don't brag about being high or show my students drugs when I'm teaching, but I, too, talk about drugs a lot. I mean, we're a hundred years into a war that we're fighting against ourselves for no good reason. I understand that rubs a lot of people the wrong way, especially if they misunderstand me to be encouraging irresponsible use, so I can imagine that's why this person was upset. I forgive him. But my point is the comment lands with a lot of power, not because we all think it would be dangerous for a teacher to teach a class after smoking a joint. Oh no, the class might wind up talking about Tim Leary and eating Cheetos. No. That accusation has power because of cultural knowledge, because of the words they used, especially at the institutional level, like universities. Our cultural knowledge is pretty solidly set on drugs are bad, dangerous, evil, counterproductive, punishable, unsafe. Keep going with the list if you'd like. We all have it at the ready. And I, like you, dear listener, I know this. I've learned so well along the way to just expect pushback that I now surveil myself to a large degree. Foucault says that power isn't ever centered in any space, but that it's always in flux, always pushing and pulling, ebbing and flowing. He calls it a capillary system coming from everywhere all at once, inescapable. Drug users in the United States don't have the luxury of carving out a few spaces of safe identity where they don't have to perform for the Panopticon. They have to know that the Panopticon is always watching. They have to know that, according to Foucault's knowledge is power theory, those around them are almost certain to hear references to drug use as encouragements to behave irresponsibly and counterculturally and they're almost certain to see signs of drug use as signs of failure, contagiousness, evil. They must surveil themselves and perform as if they're not using, and incentivize behavior certain to make addiction issues worse if they do arise. Again, we built the system to not only maximize addiction potential, but also to maximize addiction severity when it does show up. Now let's quickly connect this all together, because I get it. I've been dropping big head theories with my drug talk for the last few episodes now, and it might all be feeling a bit overwhelming or disconnected to you. So Nietzsche last episode told us that God is dead, and that we killed him. Now we don't have any solid foundations for moral or ethical beliefs, because after science got rid of many of the reasons we all feared God as humans, we never took the time to replace the unquestionable, all-powerful idea of God that existed before that happened, before all the God-fears that were once scared of floods, earthquakes, eclipses, and diseases realized that wasn't what was causing them. Now, no worries, said Marcuse Adorno and Horkheimer last week, along with many of our other Frankfurt schoolers. We've now got straight junk food culture, what they call the culture industry. We now watch the Super Bowl even if we don't like football because the commercials will be so great. The very heart of U.S. culture is literally consumerism and commercialism. It's the glamorization of hucksters trying to peddle cheap crap using multi-million dollar commercials stuffed between segments of millionaire athletes playing sports. That's U.S. culture, like it or not, and it's no wonder. What else can we really be expected to do? Like Karl Marx explained, the norms of capitalist production create such misery and discontentment in the workers, the proletariat, that they'll eventually rise up and take over the factories. Now, of course, that never happened, at least not yet. Marx was wrong on that point, but he had a point nonetheless. Our labor, our work, is disconnected from our identities. Because of that soul-sucking norm of hourly wage work that we really don't enjoy, we spend our free time, our leisure time, hot-wiring our neurology, consuming chemicals and media spectacles designed to massage our mu-receptors, to dope us up to endure another day of docility tomorrow, as Foucault would say. And since that's our normal cultural routine, work eight hours, drink beer, watch CSI and repeat, Many of us struggle with addictions to drugs because they, too, skip the effort and just push the feel-good button. We don't have the energy to seek out fulfillment, so we turn to the culture industry. When it fails to fulfill its promises, and it always does, we turn to drugs. And when we turn to drugs, enter Foucault, we find ourselves stuck on the negative side of panoptic power, Cursed with the knowledge that we might be found out as bad people if we let our dirty little secret slip. We police ourselves. We lie. We hide our use and bury our problems instead of finding social support networks to work through them. And unless the collective cultural knowledge of the panoptic world around us changes, we'll be forced to keep doing the same thing. Because the war on drugs ensures those in positions of power they can't alter their knowledge. They, too, must assume that they are being watched, and they must police themselves. If they don't, someone else will. That's panoptic power. So sorry about the two kinda dreary shows in a row, but there is hope. I think soon I'll cover some of the ways that these theories actually open doors to rework the war on drugs and our collective understanding of drug use and drug users, and I'll try to do that in an episode coming up soon so stay tuned for that. I appreciate y'all listening, and I do hope this work helps somebody find what they've been looking for. I'm Ben Boyce.